Facebook is timing us in. We are getting on Facebook. Ah. There okay, so little blue line going across, going across, going across. Here we are. So, welcome to A Sip of Inspiration. This is our podcast version of our television show that we usually do, as you all know, and can TV. And we're going to talk about today one of my favorite subjects, which generally you all know if it's not, if we're not talking about finances, we're talking about uh, incarceration and the problem with mass incarceration. So in doing a little research for today's show, I guess over the last few months, I, it seems like everywhere I go, I bump into the bail and the problem with bail. And not having really thought about it much over the last few years, but the more you think about it and you hear the stories, we realize that that has become an issue in our society. But most people don't think about it. They don't know what that means. They just figure, oh, they couldn't make bail. They did this horrible thing is usually what happens and what in people's minds. So I wanted to invite today, Matthew McFarland. Say hi, Matthew. Hello, everybody. It's good to be here. Thank you, Stephanie. And you're going to have to help me with your name again. Amadou Drame. I tell you, it's got a cool ring to it. So uh, Matthew is with the Bell Project and Amadou is with the Safer Foundation. And for those of you who are listening know, I absolutely love the Safer Foundation uh, because it's always great information. They're doing great things. And if you haven't followed the Bell Project, you need to follow the Bell Project because they're doing some great things too. So welcome to today's episode. So let's get started. I want you guys to Share a little bit about your background with the audience so they can understand that we're really talking about real people and talking to real people. So we'll start with Matthew. Sure. Uh, thanks, Stephanie. So my name is Matthew McFarland. I am the Regional Operations Manager for the Bail Project. I oversee operations in Illinois and in Northwest Indiana. Um, been with the Bail Project for about a year. And prior to that, I was actually an employee and former colleague of Amadou there over at the Safer Foundation, where I ran um, educational programs for uh, people with records, right, that were coming out of prisons and jails um, in an effort to, to put them on a different trajectory, for lack of a better terms. Um, and so I'm just really grateful to be here and engage in the conversation about bail and cash bail. And um, yeah, so thank you, for, thank you for having me. Oh, I, I will add to that too. I am somebody who has impacted uh, myself, right? I've been to jail. I've been to prison. Um, I am a recovering alcoholic and addict coming up on five years sober. So I'm really grateful um, to have the ability to do this work because it, it strikes a chord very personally with me as well. So, you know, thanks for having this conversation and keeping it on everybody's radar, Stephanie. You're welcome. And thank you for sharing that because so many people don't realize that even though we a lot of people do have experiences as being an ex-offender or an ex-addict or an ex-alcoholic. Uh, we do recover. And recovery is not only is it possible, but it is highly probable if you follow the right steps. So thank you for sharing that. And next, Amadou, Amadou is it? Help me now. Yep. Make me say it you right. Amadou, Amadou, okay. second time. Amadou, okay. Well, uh, first and foremost. Tell us about your background. Oh, gladly. Uh, well, first of all, Stephanie, thank you for having uh, me and Matthew on the show today, and thank you for continuing to allow this to be a forum where Safer Foundation can come and share information about the work that we do and the importance of that work. 
Uh, my name is Amadou Drame. I've been working at the Safer Foundation uh, coming up on two years this summer. Uh, I work in the policy and advocacy arm of the organization, but just for the purpose of, purposes of your, your viewership and to give them a reminder, um, we're probably one of the largest reentry service providers um, in the country. Uh, we provide services exclusively for people with arrest and conviction records. Uh, that looks like workforce development programming. We've got a counseling and wellness center. Uh, we have a community housing program. And basically what we try to do is you know, provide programming and supports and services that are critical to people reentering communities. And in addition to doing that, um, we have a policy and advocacy and research arm of the organization that puts out thought leadership and advocates for better policies, programs, more resources to be directed towards people with arrest and conviction records. So I have the pleasure of leading that team. Um, and yes, Matthew is a former colleague, colleague of mine, but always a brother of mine, uh, you know, as long as we're in a relationship. So again, thank you for having us. That's a bit about me and about the work that we do at Safer. Fantastic. Thank you guys for agreeing. Um, like I said before, I usually like to do something about this and around this nature about every three months because it's changing so fast. And with the um, incarceration rates seemingly increasing, this is a conversation that we do need to have. So the, the bill project is something that I stumbled up on on a TED talk. And I thought, oh, cool. This is really cool. This really exists. And then I thought, uh, let me follow it. And it's been a lot of successes. So tell us, uh, let's talk about a little bit about how, where, and why the bill project was started, because not everybody caught it on that TED talk. Yes, yeah, sure. So you probably saw the TED talk with our president and CEO, Robin Steinberg, I would, I would imagine is someone you, you may have watched. Um, but the bail project's a national nonprofit organization. We're currently operating in 21 jurisdictions across the country. And actually, um, the whole thing was born. Um, two public defenders um, from the Bronx uh, got together. They, they were essentially getting tired, right? Growing, growing tired of watching people languish in these jails simply because they didn't have the money to get out. Um, what they saw is that people who were, who had, they had a strong case, you know, against, right, or, or for, um, ended up kind of plea bargaining into um, convictions, right? And uh, which resulted in those collateral consequences of having a conviction, like, you know, which is one of the reasons why I'm so grateful Amadou's here representing SAFER is, you know, having trouble finding employment, um, have, you know, trouble finding housing, and I'm sure Amadou will touch on some of his work there. Um, but so they got tired of seeing the same thing over and over again. And um, what it came down to, it wasn't even a question of guilt or innocence. It was a question of how much money or resources they had available, whether or not you know, that's what determined whether or not they would stay or they would go home. And so these two public defenders, David Feiga and Robin Steinberg, who are actually now married, um, came up with an idea of creating a charity, right? Because they couldn't pay bail themselves. Um, there was, you know, ethically that wouldn't be, that wouldn't be fair or right. And so they thought we should start this charity, right? We should, we should ask people right. to fund this, right? And it was a crazy idea, it had never been done before. And um, so they, they worked tirelessly asking people essentially for donations. And um, eventually they, they came across a gentleman uh, who was willing to give them $100,000 to start to start out this bail fund, so to speak. And so they didn't know it was gonna work. Uh, they had no idea. They, they, you know, the sales pitch in itself was met with some challenges, right? People were like, that's the craziest idea I've ever heard. 
Um, since when is it a good idea to bail, bail people out of jail? I mean, like, and so what they did know, though, is that, you know, at the end of a case, they would get the money back, right? And so if they could just help people to make their court dates, they would be able to reunite them with their families, right, in a way that would cause less damage to the family unit while providing supports. And so they did this, and they realized that, like, the first few cases, I mean, people were showing back up to court even though they had no financial skin in the game. And at the end of the case, the money would come back. And so out of that was born this idea of a revolving bail fund, which is, mm -hmm. you know, charities pay money to bail people out of jail, provide them with supports. They come back to court and at the end of the case, they get the money back, right? The, the money comes back into the revolving fund and it can be recycled and reused, you know, three or four times a year on different individuals. And so with that model came the birth of what is known now as the Bronx Freedom Fund. And it was a, it's a nonprofit organization. Actually, just recently, we're closing, they're closing the doors uh, in, in July, I believe, um, for, for that operations there because there's been bail reform in New York, even though it's, it's not completely ideal, but it's, it's substantial enough to be able to say, okay, our work is done here. But so they, they started the Bronx Freedom Fund, and what they did is they ran a 10-year pilot. Uh, they bailed 2,000 people out of jail, and they collected data and information about those folks. And what they found out was absolutely amazing. What they found out was that 96% of those people came back to court even though they had no financial skin in the game whatsoever. 50% of those cases were actually dropped, right? The state just dropped them altogether. Right. Um, and only two and only 2% of those cases ever served any jail time as a result of the case that we provided bail assistance for. And so what that told us is that it turns out that bail, that cash bail isn't the thing, right, that makes people come back to court. People come back to court because they believe it's their civic duty. And of course, there's, um, you know, there, there, if you don't come back to court, there's a possibility of a warrant being issued for your arrest, so on and so forth. And so what they found is that people were coming back to court. And they also saw that the, the dispositions of those cases, right, were much different right. and for the individuals who were involved in the criminal justice system. And so it's amazing um, to see that. And, and what we know now is that cash bail, right, is the oil, so to speak, that keeps the plea bargaining machine running, right? And so right. as long as held in jail pre-trial. And we're talking about a population that hasn't been proven guilty or innocent, right? These are people pre-trial, right? Um, that if people are held in jail and they're, they're held in jail simply because they don't have enough money to get out, the potential for them plea bargaining themselves into a conviction, be it probation, parole, maybe a, a small jail sentence, or even, you know, even prison, um, the likelihood of them entering into that agreement is much higher, right? Just so they can get home. And so what they saw was people were reunited with their families, they were getting jobs, they were coming back to court, and um, they were less likely to, to uh, you know, to accept an offer from the state. And so um, it was an amazing program. It, it happened over 10 years. And then not to tell too much of Robin's story, but I do know uh, some of it very personally, is that she was checking her email one day and, and the producers from TED um, had emailed her and they under this audacious project and they wanted to talk about you know like would she be interested in in talking about or creating a model that was national right could she could she scale does she believe this thing is scalable and so she did the ted talk the one that you saw and our initial seed money was 25 million dollars over a five-year 
uh, period. And wow. that's what, that's how the bail project was born. And so we started scaling up, you know, um, in different jurisdictions across the country. And here we are today, you know, so um, yeah, pretty amazing, pretty amazing start to the whole thing. So, so on the bail, what's the average amount of time, say, most people are spending in jail, and I don't want to say in limo, in limbo, because they're in jail, so they're not out in society earning money, taking care of their families, they're actually in jail awaiting a verdict of guilty or innocent. So what's the average number of time in people who are actually caught in that limbo state? So, you know, Stephanie, it's a great question. We, we've seen it, it varies substantially. It varies um, from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, from case to case. Uh, we've seen people that are in there, you know, for an undetermined amount of time, right? And so if they're facing a more serious charge, you know, they could they could be in jail pre-trial for years, right? While they're going back and mm -hmm. forth to court from jail, their jail cell fighting their case. Um, the bottom line is if you don't have the money to bond out, you'll sit there as long as it takes, whether you like it or not. And that's the problem. And so what we try to do is intervene as quickly as possible to get people back out and provide them the supports needed, right? That kind of mitigate the challenges that somebody faces when they're re-entering society, be it from, you know, especially in a pretrial context. And mm -hmm. which is why it's so important for us to partner with amazing organizations like Safer Foundation, you know, that provide those needed supports. Um, but yeah, the answer to your question could be days, could be weeks, could be months. Could be never. If you don't have the money to pay it, you'll sit there as long as it takes. You know, I read a story about a young lady who was an RN, had a little girl that was six years old, was arrested for something minor. It was a nonviolent crime. Uh, went to jail. A bond was, she needed like $500 and couldn't raise the bond. Didn't know anyone who had it. She didn't have it. And literally stayed in jail. It took her family about eight months to raise that money. They raised the money. But in the meantime, she lost her apartment, her car, her job, and all of that, only to go to court and have it dismissed. So are those stories common? Yeah. That's just really unsolved. I got one question. Who benefits from it? Huh? Who benefits well, everybody from loses it? in a scenario like that. Yeah, I mean, everybody loses, you know, from our perspective in a situation like the one you described. I mean, the family loses, society loses, our tax base loses. I mean, there's really, I don't think there's a valid argument for keeping anybody incarcerated, you know, especially pretrial, but especially somebody who has proven innocent at the end of that, you know, I mean, it's just, <clears throat> everybody suffers, you know, and those are the exact types of stories we're trying to we're trying to change that narrative. We're trying to stop that, you know. Um, but yeah, they're all too common, unfortunately. So Amadou, how, at what point would you enter into the pre, up to the bail project scenario in those instances? Once they're out or who do, who do you, how do you know who to call if you're in that situation? Yeah, sure. Thank you for the question. So part of what we try to do as an organization is place ourselves at every point in the justice system to make sure that should somebody be diverted away or should somebody be given the alternative to land on some supports, 
land and, and, and be redirected to some programming, et cetera, that the organization is there to provide some sort of support um, and stability and wrap around and supportive services for individuals. So with the partnership that we've got with uh, Matt's organization and the Bell Project, and Matt knows how Safer fun functions pretty well, um, part of what we do is, you know, Matt's team goes in and they are primarily concerned about getting an individual out of in, in basically pretrial detention or pretrial incarceration. Uh, where we come in is if there are individuals who have supports, need to be provided different types of services, et cetera, uh, through our partnership, um, we are able to provide those supports um, to those individuals. Sometimes that looks like an individual needing, you know, employment type support, job training, et cetera. Sometimes it may be mm -hmm. uh, other types of wraparound and supportive services, but uh, the partnership is there and exists so that we can leverage the strengths of our respective organizations. So, you know, we're grateful for Matt and, and the Bell Project for their partnership and the work that they're doing, uh, but also uh, we appreciate them being mindful of the fact that, you know, for every reform, every effort we try to do to get somebody out of the justice system, we also have to think about what the process is like to transitioning that individual back into society. And I think, you know, a lot of times there are, you know, misconceptions, misunderstandings about what the work actually looks like. Uh, but people should know that, you know, the Bell Project is partnering with organizations like SAFER who do provide those wraparound and supportive services to help people transition back in. Because a lot of times, I feel like people are often fearful when they hear about different strategies that really involve decarceration or getting people out, who frankly, as Matt just indicated, should be presumed innocent until proven guilty. Uh, and they have not been proven guilty. So uh, we try to provide those supports and those services to help people transition back in and maintain that level of stability in their lives because uh, that's, that's, that's ultimately what we ought to be doing. We shouldn't be trying to, you know, cause and lead to unemployment and, you know, force people and, you know, transition people into homelessness. That's not the business that, you know, we ought to be in, nor should our government or, you know, our, our, our correctional uh, and justice systems. So in yeah, can I, can uh, some I, recent, like to... go ahead, yes. I'm sorry, I just wanted to piggyback off what Amadou said because, um, <clears throat> you know, Safer Foundation, has amazing outcomes, right? Everybody, everybody in this area around us has probably heard of the Safer Foundation. They've been around like I think 48 years now, right, Amadou? And and we know the things that reduce recidivism, right? We know that employment, we know that housing, we know that substance use and mental health treatment, those are vital to to reducing recidivism, right? That is the rate at which people return to prison, right? Those things are equally as effective when you insert them earlier on in the criminal justice process. And that's one of the amazing things that we love about our, our relationship with Safer Foundation, is we're not just seeing people getting jobs, we're, we're seeing the outcomes of the cases change, right? It's different, right? When you come to court and you're showing up to court and you're saying, yeah, I mean, coming to court is one thing, but coming to court holding a GED certificate in your hand is another. Holding, going to court and showing your first paycheck is, is something different too, right? And judges, unless they're absolutely forced to do so under manda mandatory minimum sentencing laws, are far much less likely to sentence somebody to prison and pull somebody out of the community when they are doing all those things, right? When they're paying into the tax base, when they're supporting their families, when they're, 
when they really change the trajectory of their lives. And one of the things I, I love about Saver, and I'm so excited about this partnership, is that you can't pull somebody out of a horrible situation, right? And send them directly back into a bad situation and expect them to thrive. That's why organizations like Safer Foundation are so imperative and critical to the work we do and the successes we have. Because people, we're not just pulling people out of jail arbitrarily, we're connecting them with the needed wraparound services. And it really doesn't just change the trajectory of their case, it changes the trajectory of their lives. And that is a beautiful partnership. That is fantastic. Recently, I read a little bit about uh, the courts moving to electronic monitoring, ankle bracelets. What are some of the drawbacks of this approach? I've got my own opinions. (laughs) I think Uh, it's not necessity. It's expensive. It's just everything. Yeah. So I'll say a couple things. I'm going to turn over to Howard because I know Safer has this fight too, but real quick. One of the things, well, first of all, in, yes, in some jurisdictions, people actually actually have to, to pay for their monitoring, right, for their ankle bracelet. Um, they also have to charge it. Some of these devices, like in Indianapolis, you have to charge it like three times a day. The equipment is sometimes faulty, right? And so there's a heightened possibility of technical violations, but not just that. When you're incarcerated, you're incarcerated, Right. And I'm going to turn it over to Amadou now because from a workforce development perspective and a wraparound services perspective, that, that creates a challenge. It's really hard. How do you find somebody a job? How do you help somebody get housing? How do you, you know, when they're, when they're limited and restricted in their movement? Um, but Amadou. Yeah, sure. Um, so I, I guess, you know, the biggest challenge that a lot of people have with electronic monitoring is that it just becomes a less expensive alternative to incar- alternative form of incarceration. So, you know, whereas a person would be incarcerated, whether it be pretrial or uh, parole after they've served their sentence or as a condition of their sentence, uh, where, you, where, where you just have another form of incarceration. Um, you know, there are some folks who are concerned that there's an entire industry that has grown out of that. Um, and so that's, that's one concern that people have. There's the question as to how, you know, you, uh, you know, wind up uh, on their all, all, you know, wind up on electronic monitoring altogether. Uh, what your risk is to public safety, uh, you know, sometimes this blends into conversations about the, the, the role of algorithms and, and, and predicting what people's, you know, future behavior is going to be based upon past um, assumptions and, 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 and sometimes actions. And so it, it, it begins all of these different uh, questions. But I think where we've seen it uh, stepped up in more recent months is really as a result of the pandemic and the justice system, whether it be jail systems and you know folks who lead local jails and state prisons, trying to figure out ways to decarcerate, reduce the population of their facilities while simultaneously um, not uh, leading the public to be fearful. And you know, I'm not saying that I necessarily agree with you know that that everybody who's released from some form of incarceration is a risk to public safety necessarily, but this is the response that the public tends to have, um, and so this has been the strategy that uh, different you know folks in the justice system and leaders in the justice system uh, have have opted to um, take on. But those are some of the concerns that we've seen, and 
yeah, I think to Matt's point, electronic monitoring, if not done properly, uh, can certainly just become an alternative form of incarceration and make it impossible for the community and wraparound services that a person needs uh, to succeed uh, to be implemented. It makes it difficult sometimes for people to experience life and to reintegrate back into communities and just develop meaningful relationships and connect the community again. It becomes a challenge for them to maintain employment. Um, and so if that's the situation, you know, sometimes you got to wonder, is this helpful or is this leading people to go ahead and technically violate in some respect and then reenter the justice system altogether, which, you know, to your earlier question, every time somebody goes back to prison, every time somebody goes back to jail, it costs us on average about $150,000 for each individual. Um, that's the cost to taxpayers. That's the cost of society as a loss of productivity. So we've got to think about um, the ways that we do this. And there are other approaches that different municipalities and different jurisdictions around the country and around the world have adopted that just frankly make a lot more sense. Um, so yeah. Okay, I think we have a question of someone who's listening in. Is there a question? Uh, yes, there is. Hi. Um, this question is both to uh, Matthew and to uh, Amadou. Um, you guys talk about the, uh, the bail project. Is the bail project just for uh, uh, local, county, municipal uh, crimes? Or is it also for federal crimes? Also, uh, my experience has shown that if there's a bail posted, usually the court will turn that bail money over to a court-appointed attorney. Uh, so how is that revolving door uh, bail process working? Once again, uh, is it also for federal crime? Because, because it is true, it is absolutely positively true, we are guilty until we prove ourselves innocent. So how does this uh, program work? Yeah, so um, I'll take a I'll take a stab at that if I can. Uh, so no, we we do op we operate in 21 jurisdictions across the country right now. Um, in Chicago, we're limited to Cook County, but we're looking at expanding our reach into other jurisdictions and other counties. Um, in answer to your, I mean, I completely understand. In fact, last time I saw him, and this is going to be kind of funny, was uh, was at a uh, a meeting with the board of commissioners. But what we were able to do in September is pass an ordinance, right, that protects third-party sureties from losing their bail money um, and, and fines and fees being taken out of their bail. And so that began back in September when we were able to, to pass a, uh, a county ordinance. Uh, Larry, Commissioner Larry Sufferton was a sponsor of that. Um, and as of late, we're able to turn that into a general order now that protects uh, fines and fees. because. You know, if, if, if you've ever posted bail for somebody, it, it's, it's very disheartening. I mean, you sit there at the bond window, they make you read a sign that essentially says some or all of the money that you're about to post, you know, is, could be used for fines and fees, you know, could be awarded to attorneys, could be used for restitution, so on and so forth. And so very rarely is it ever the defendant, right, or the detainee that's posting their own bail. So what you see, if you go pay bail and you sit there long enough, you see the grandmother, right? Reading the sign, mm -hmm. holding the 500 mm -hmm. bucks in this hand, going, do I pay the rent or do I bring Johnny home to be with his kids, 
right? Because mm -hmm. if I pay rent, I can't float this for as long as this case may go. Right. And so what happens all too often is grandma will forego the challenge, all right, the risk, and she'll say, I, I got to get Johnny out, only to find out later that she never sees that rent money again. And then that further exacerbates some of the other problems that are facing our communities, right? Mm -hmm. Housing, you know, uh, not having money to pay food, poverty, you know, which exacerbates crime, so on and so forth. And so it's this huge revolving wheel. But what we were able to do locally and what we try to do in all jurisdictions, right, is not just pass legislation or, or get ordinances or laws or general orders that protect our revolving fund, but we do it for the benefit of the community. And so we were able to pass, uh, Larry Suffering, we were able to get enough votes to pass this, this ordinance back in September, which just, just into, into March, we were able to turn into a general order, which now protects all third-party sureties who post bail from fines and fees without their explicit voluntary written consent from being taken out of bail money. And it prevents judges from awarding it to bar attorneys, so on and so forth. Another thing that we started seeing, which, which made us kind of look into this and, and change this situation is that people were being denied a public defender, right? Simply because there was bail money on the line. Well, that's not Johnny, if Johnny's the defendant, right, or the detainee, it's not even his money. It's his mother's, it's his daughter's, it's his sister, or whatever, you know what I mean? It's his father's. And and so what was, we, we saw that happening. And so the only way to do this, and Amadou can talk, you know, because I know his work and policy and advocacy, and it's amazing. He can talk to you about this is much bigger than just that. It takes legislative change. It takes policy reform. It takes movements like this to protect people from these further underlying systemic problems that exist, right, in our communities. And so that's yeah. teeing it up for you, Amadou. Yeah, that's well, right. Much appreciated. I, I would just, uh, just to reinforce what Matt said, and then I can certainly talk about some of the policy work that we've done. Uh, you know, Matt alluded to this, but I just want to put it a little more clearly that when we talk about cash bail and the role that it plays in our justice system, but also in our communities. You know, you take a place like Cook County where the majority of, overwhelming majority of, you know, the Cook County jail consists of black and brown folks uh, and black and brown men in particular disproportionately, but we see a growing number of women. Uh, when we think about who, you know, when we think about who has to actually post bail um, in most instances, uh, we're talking about black and brown women who are oftentimes being forced to make those choices. And not only is it impacting, you know, the, the bail being, you know, in pre-trial pre detention, disproportionately impacting the person who's incarcerated, but it, in, it, it impacts their families, it, it impacts their, their spouses, their kids, et cetera, uh, their grandmothers, their aunts, whoever uh, may be the first of kin who can, you know, provide support in some ways. And so when you're faced with the choice of, do I pay rent? or do I post bail, you know, both roads are probably gonna lead down to something sad, poverty on the one hand, and on the other hand, you've got a family member who won't see the light of day and may be innocent uh, based upon what's happening in the justice system. So uh, I just wanted to underscore that. Uh, to, to Matt's point, you know, a lot of our work has focused on systems change. And we, if, if the pandemic has taught us anything it's that there are a lot of gaps that have long existed in our justice system uh, at every level, whether it be locally, whether it be um, at, at, at the state level with prisons, et cetera. 
And all this pandemic has done is just make it that much more clear that these gaps exist. For instance, you know, our justice system is really built to lock people away. Uh, that's why all the incentives at the local level kind of fly in the face of uh, people, you know, pleading innocent and, and saying that they're and, and claiming to be innocent. A lot of times people don't have the money to post bail. They need to get out and, you know, maybe they cop a plea just to get out. Um, and so that's why the work that Matt does is all the more important. Uh, uh, there, are, there are gaps in terms of what does the transition back into community look like, whether that be coming out of the jail, whether that be coming out of prison. There is no reentry infrastructure at any level of government. There's no system. There's no system that transitions people back from prisons, state or federal. There's no system, really, not a, not a comprehensive, holistic one, that transitions people back from local jails back in the, in, into community. And so it's important that as we do this work, even during the pandemic, that we continue to say the things that we've been saying for a long time, that there needs to be a greater focus by government, whether it be you know at the state level, local level, federal level, that there needs to be a greater focus, more investment in this transition. And we really ought to be negotiating uh, the social contract between uh, folks who are incarcerated, whether it be pretrial or prison, uh, and in the state or the government in general. Because, you know, the way we look at things as safer, and I know that Matt looks at things the same way, having a record is not just a point in time and a thing that happened in the past and nobody ever thinks about it again. Having a record, it walks with you like a social disability for the rest of your life. You are socially disabled. You're dying a civic death is what one of my good sisters who does this work tells me all the time. It feels like she's dying a civic death in a, in a, in a civil death where society locks her out of opportunity. You can't get a job. You can't get housing. You, you have a hard time signing up for public benefits. And it's like, when does the sentence end and their life continue to, 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 to you know, continue or, or, or begin? Um, and so, you know, it's just important for us to, in this moment during the pandemic, but also going forward to say, you know, the pandemic is here. We knew these gaps existed. They're still going to exist, but we've got to continue to, you know, let folks know that these are problems and we've got to do something about it. So I, I know there's a lot that we need to do. So how, how, how do everyday ordinary citizens get involved? What can they do to help? Uh, because this is not only a problem just for say you or me, everyone knows someone or has a family member that first off was arrested for something that was nonviolent and can't get out of jail. And then once they do get out, even if they're there, you know, like if it takes a week to get them out, what do they do about work when they were there? And then, and, and if they, if there is a conviction, then you, you, you're right. You never seem to get past it. Even if it's nonviolent, you're always, even if you did all of your time and did all of your parole and you were successful and you got a good job, you still have that, as you call it, you have that social disability. So how, what do we need to do as ordinary people, ordinary citizens? Because sometimes I think people underestimate their power and what they can do to help you guys do what you do. So what is it we need to do? Uh, so, I'll, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, I'll speak 
on behalf of myself and our organization, and obviously there, there's there's a lot. I, we could do several shows on what we need to do, I'm sure. I know, um, I know. So don't worry. When we get in the studio, we're okay. going to do several shows, okay? <laughs> so, so one of the first things I think we need to do is do away with the two-tiered criminal justice system that we have, right? Over 90% of our nation's jail growth is happening pre-trial, and that means it's people that haven't even been, been convicted of anything. Over 90%, right? Cash bail further exacerbates the inequities of our criminal justice system. And when I refer to it as a two-tiered criminal justice system, it's one for the rich and one for the poor. And literally, I'm not talking about guilt or innocence here. I'm talking about whether or not you go home depends on how much money you have in your bank account and what resources you have. And as long as those two, that two-tiered criminal justice system exists, it's not gonna change, right? Poor right. people will be locked up and incarcerated and mass and on a mass scale, and the rich people will get out, right? Or the people that have those resources. If if incarceration made our communities safer, we would be the safest nation in the world. We incarcerate more people at a higher rate than anywhere else in, on the globe, anywhere, and yet we still suffer from you know poverty. We still suffer from these these inequities. But what we're doing is we're locking up a whole lot of black and brown folks. And you tell me, how does that make sense, right? I think what we need to do is first educate ourselves, right? Educate ourselves about the impact that, that having a record, right? Even if it's an arrest record, not a conviction, has on somebody's life, right? Currently in Illinois, there's 4.2 million adults with arrests and conviction records, right? These are 4.2 million adults that are going to have a hard time or at some point in the job interview are gonna to have to explain a mistake. And those are the folks that supposedly got caught, right? There's a lot of people that, that make bad decisions. We all have a childhood, we go through life. Mm -hmm. Some of us get caught up in the criminal justice system because of those bad decisions and some of us don't, right? But right now we know this, that 4.2 million of us in Illinois have. One third of the population in the country, right? One third are people with arrests or conviction records, people that have at some point in their life had some interaction with the criminal justice system. We need to educate ourselves. The second thing we need to do is we need to invest in exactly what Amadou talked about, the infrastructure to take, to take its place. We have to abolish and end cash bail. That's number one. Until we do that, the racial inequities will continue in our criminal justice system and process. We have to end cash bail, but we can't stop there. We have to build the infrastructure and invest in organizations like Safer Foundation, right? That can provide something to replace it. You know what I mean? And I and I agree mm -hmm. with Amadou. We, we need to contact our legislators. We need to ask them to invest in things. We need to build an infrastructure that doesn't incarcerate, right? That doesn't just lock people up and throw away the key. It doesn't make our communities any safer. And we know that. So those are the two, those are the main things I would say that that are imperative that we we act on, right? A call to action. But I'd be curious to hear what Amadou's thoughts are on that. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, this pandemic has, you know, during this pandemic, we've seen both our county jail and our state prison system both reduce the, the, the correctional or detention population significantly. Uh, we haven't seen this this type of reduction in the jail population. I don't think ever. I mean, I, I, I've, I've studied this. I've never seen anything like this happen. In Cook County. And I'll say the same thing for the state of Illinois and in the, in the Illinois Department of Corrections. So 
the first thing we need to do is continue to say to decision makers, but also to community members, look, if this pandemic allows us to reduce the population of our jails and prisons during a pandemic, it's good enough for normal times. Uh, and yes. so a lot of folks who we were willing to release early, they probably shouldn't have been there in the first place. And we need to continue right. to hold our leaders accountable and say to them, don't over incarcerate people who have no business being there in the first place, because that's what the pandemic has just taught us. Um, so, so that's the first thing. The second thing I would say is that Matt, you know, Matt just alluded to the fact that 41%, well, 4.1 million people in the state of Illinois have an arrested conviction record. That amounts to about 41% of the working age adults who live in the state. One out of three, maybe a little more than one out of three. But if that's the case, each of us has somebody in our family, in our network, somebody mm -hmm. we know, maybe us ourselves, who's been through the justice system, who has an arrest or conviction record. We need to continue to share stories and humanize people because oftentimes people become fearful because they try to other and dehumanize people who've been through the justice system. Now, there's nothing, that's not to say that there's no role for personal accountability, that there's no role for public safety and balancing this discussion. That's not what I'm saying. But these are human beings at the end of the day. And in my faith and in most faiths, the faiths of other people, people have an opportunity to redeem themselves, to get their lives back on track. And people deserve a second chance. And so we've got to become a society that allows people to do that and doesn't erect barriers that prevents people from doing that. The third thing that I would say is, I think that you should follow the organizations that are on this interview uh, on social media. I know that Safer and the Bell Project have social media handles. And so you should follow Safer Foundation and Bell Project on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, et cetera, because uh, that's, a, that's a place where you'll get a lot of information about different things that we have going on. I know at Safer, we're building a statewide reentry alliance where we're working with people who are directly impacted by the justice system, uh, folks who provide work at organizations that provide direct services, policy advocates such as myself and their, you know, other interested parties to try to continue doing this work and doing this movement work so that we can reverse um, the, you know, the, the, the damage that has been caused by mass incarceration on our community. And it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to take a while. But those are places where we can find out information about ways that people can get involved and get plugged in. So um, those are the three things that I would say, and I'm sure, you know, Bell Project, Safer, this work is not, you know, we, we don't, we're not able to make it happen for free, unfortunately. It takes resources to make that happen. So, um, you know, two worthy organizations that certainly deserve uh, anybody's individual contribution, especially if you care about people who, you know, have set, paid their debt to society and are trying to get on the right path. And you all are 501c3 organizations. Yep. So you know what that means to my audience that feel free to write a check of any amount. And don't think that if all you got is $5 that it won't help because it will help. Helps. Okay. Yeah. So whatever you have to spare, please put them on your list of giving and along with giving money because we need money. Um, as you share the social media, as you like the social media, share it with your friends, uh, make comments about it, let people know it's there so that other people can begin to know the great work and also perhaps begin to support their great work too. Uh, do we have another question? I'm sorry. We had a hand raised. Okay. So 
Now, I know you guys each have a great story. I, you know, people like to have feel good stories when they're helping people. So we're going to help them out there. So what are some of the things that you did that maybe you weren't sure was going to work out? And at the end, it was just a great feel good moment for you and helped you remember why you do what you do every day. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to start if you want that. Yeah, 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 sure. Yeah, I, I would say for me, um, it was, you know, Matt alluded to this earlier and I didn't pick up on this cue, but uh, it, it was really passing the Cook County Just Housing Ordinance, uh, which happened last, about a year ago, um, last month, I believe. But it, it was um, probably the proudest moment of my life. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a Muslim by faith uh, and uh, but I, I've read the Bible and I know in the book of Matthew uh, that there's a story about, you know, feeding the hungry, uh, you know, clothing those without clothes, providing shelter for people who, who don't have shelter uh, and visiting people who are in prison or who are detained um, and, and seeing to them and making sure that they were OK. And, and for me, uh, that was a point in time where all of those things were able to converge. Uh, just to give a little history, the, the Just Housing Coalition, of which I'm a member, um, had been working on this issue for about four years. Um, and really, when you think about the discrimination that people face in housing, especially folks with records, uh, there were some surveys conducted by Roosevelt University that for everybody who had been surveyed, about 65% of them had experienced housing discrimination within the two years prior that survey being conducted. Uh, Smart Policy Works in the University of Chicago had conducted a study of Safer Foundation and Task Clients, two organizations that Matt's organization works with. And what we found was that 41% of the people who were surveyed had experienced some, some form of housing instability within the year prior. That meant that they had either been sleeping in a hotel for a few days, sleeping out of a car, sleeping under a viaduct, sleeping on a bench, et cetera, sleeping with a relative. They didn't have a place to call their own, right? And this is, you know, the, the, what hurts me the most is really seeing people not have a place to go. Um, and we worked very hard and got this ordinance passed. And, you know, the Just Housing Ordinance in Cook County severely limits one's ability. This is, way I, this is how I describe it. It limits one's ability to discriminate against people solely based on their record and lays out a process that landlords have to take and follow in order to evaluate people, not just based on their record, but also on the other things that they've done to their lives, done in their lives. And, and what we're really trying to do is with that ordinance is move away from, um, you know, looking at people just as their record. So uh, Matt knows this because, you know, I was calling him in the days leading up to the, the, the final vote on the ordinance, but uh, it wasn't always clear that it was gonna happen. Uh, there's 17 members of the Cook County Board of Commissioners we knew we had four votes going in that day, which is not the way you want to go into a vote. Uh, but by the end of the day, uh, we had all but two commissioners vote in support um, of the ordinance. And, you know, that was the first time that I had ever cried in, you know, in doing this work because it was just so, um, there's just so much work that we put into that effort. And, uh, you, you know, you can see the impact that your work has on millions of people um, living in Cook County, even um, by not having them go through, you know, discriminatory practices and experience that anymore. So 
that would be the moment for me. And, um, you know, I'm, it's something that I'm really proud of and I pray that it continues to go, um, you know, as, as, it, as it should. Okay, Matt, but before you start, I have a question specifically for you. Um, how does an inmate avail themselves to the bail project? So right now um, in Cook County Jail, just about in every division, actually in every division, there are flyers posted. Um, because of the pandemic, we're unable to actually go in and interview folks in the jail. So what they, we ask uh, detainees to do is have their loved ones contact us. And you can simply go to our website, bailproject.org um, and request bail assistance that way. And what happens when you, when you put the information into our web portal, it generates an email to my teams um, who will then start reviewing the process right away. And so right now, because of the pandemic and our inability to get into the jail to do interviews, what we do is we reach out to the family members mm -hmm. um, and we do kind of a reverse intake. So we get some of the critical information that we need to proceed with the bail. We do have a $5,000 soft cap on our bail amounts. So those are $50,000 D bonds or less. It doesn't mean that we can't go higher, but there is some some substantial mitigating things that we need to have. We need to have a contact, uh, somebody that'll help partner with us to ensure the safety, you know, that it'll help us remind the client to, you know, to make their court date, so on and so forth. But anybody can reach out to us via our website. And and your success story? So, you know, I've got two defining moments. Um, I've been in nonprofit for a long time, and I've had my, um, I've had my challenges, my personal challenges uh, in recovery um, and relapse and things like that. But two, two of my most proudest moments, actually, one of them, I, the irony here is with my former employer, Safer Foundation. And, um, you know, and I, I Coming off a relapse, I went back to Safer, and I knew uh, I was looking for a chance, you know. And I had worked for Safer even once before that, and I knew if anyone was going to give me a shot, right, <laughs> of at redemption, it was going to be Safer. And so, uh, Safer brought me on, right, as as a temporary. I was, I think, I was an outreach coordinator at the time, but um, you know, I I was going through these drug this drug court at the time, and I. And I remember just talking to leadership over there saying, you know, there's a lot of folks that are going through, you know, this like trial, the, the, the pre-trial process or whatever else that could, it could really use this help. Right. And uh, they told me to go ahead and have at it, you know, and I just, I remember one gentleman in particular, and I, this is how I knew that we were onto something is that, you know, we got him a job. He was working at, um, in healthcare at hospitals. It was one of the amazing programs that Safer has is the ability to, to help people with records get jobs in, in healthcare occupations. And but there was one gentleman in particular when I was talking to him, um, you know, I, we got him a job. It was at a hospital. Um, and I asked him how it was going. He came in, he came into my office and I, you know, I asked him how it was going and tears ran down his face and he, he got really choked up and he said, Matt, for the first time, in years, somebody asked me what I do for a living, and I was able to tell them. And I think he was working as a CNA or he was doing something, maybe even been in housekeeping. But the impact that had on me, because I knew, right, that it felt pretty damn good for me to do the same thing after my relapse, right? After, after me trying to rebuild my life. It felt pretty good when people asked me what I did for a living, and I could tell them I work for an organization as fantastic as Safer Foundation, and I help other people. That was one. The
The second one, I think, happened just very recently in this pandemic. We were able to reach out to our partners at SAFER and, and Amadou had, had talked about TASC, as well as legislators that believe in our work. And we were able to operationalize this work in a way that allowed us to get people out of a horrible situation. One of the biggest hotspots in the country, right, was Cook County Jail, where this the COVID big. was, yeah, the biggest. Thank you, Amadou. Yes, I stand corrected. <laughs> it was the biggest. And it was spreading like wildfire. And people were in an absolute panic and they were calling us. I remember I was I was getting calls from family members going, you know, my, my son's in there, he has asthma, um, he's unhealthy, I'm scared, I don't know what to do. And I didn't know how to answer it. I didn't know what to do because we couldn't go in and we couldn't interview folks. I talked to my, I talked to my president and CEO, Robin Steinberg, and she said, Matt, go big, let's do whatever we can. And she offered up a million dollars. She said, let's throw a million dollars into this project. And, you know, I reached out to some legislators. I reached out to our partners at Safer Foundation at TASC, and we came together as a unified front, stood in solidarity, and were able to operationalize this mass bailout, working with the public defender's office, Kim Fox's office, the judiciary, the sheriff, to where we, we started this kind of push button, push button operation. We were able to remotely pay bails, interview family members, as I kind of alluded to, and that resulted in you know about 300 people being released in the month of April, right? We were able to pull 300 people out of jail and we spent a million dollars doing it, but I couldn't be happier about it. Um, we also partnered with the public defender's office, you know, uh, to support people that we didn't bail out, but that were released, you know, in that strategy of expeditious review that they were doing with the state's attorney's office. And that resulted in like 1,200 people coming out. And so- yes. For the first time ever, I saw people do something that I haven't seen a lot of people do, especially right here in Chicago. And that is, they rose above the politics and they did the right thing. And Amadou talk, talked about it, right? And if we get to incarcerate during a pandemic, it does make you, that's why when you were saying that, Amadou, I was shaking my head, makes you wonder why were they in there to begin with? Right. Take away here. Let's not go back to where we were. Let's continue, right? Let's continue with this. And let's support the people that need our supports. And that includes the family members, the detainees. And we have to provide a better future. We have to invest in our communities. We have to disinvest. We gotta take the money out of the jail systems, quit building jails and start putting them in the communities. A lot of people, I'll use the words of the great Victor Dixon, right? The president and CEO at Safer Foundation. Oh. A lot of people call it a second chance. Right. But for a lot of people, it's a first chance. They were never given the opportunity that a lot of us have been afforded, right? right. And so let's, let's empower people with that opportunity and then, then let's watch them thrive because that's exactly what they'll do. So as we come to the end of this show, it's always great to talk to you guys about things like this because as you said, we do incarcerate more people in the U.S. than any other country in the world. And we've got more crime in the U.S. than any country in the world. So if we haven't learned anything, is that incarcerating people has nothing to do with crime. So there are other issues at stake that we need to work on too. But I want you to let the audience know your name, your organization, and how to contact you again. So as they see this show uh, later in their, when they're on their timeline, then they'll be able to know who to contact I know by that time we all think oh I know someone who needs to know this or someone who even may be willing to help yeah so I guess I'll go Matthew McFarland uh, with the bail project um, you can reach me um, 
via email would probably be the best way. Matthew M, and that's Matthew with two T's, so M-A-T-T-H-E-W-M at bailproject.org. You can reach me directly that way. Um, if you're looking for bail assistance for a loved one, you can simply go to bailproject.org and request bail assistance that way. Um, you know, we welcome, we're, we, we're trying to get as many people out as we can. We're trying to help as many folks as we can. So I would encourage you, if you know somebody who's incarcerated in Cook County Jail, please reach out to us so we can we can provide that bail assistance. And our bail assistance, and I'll say this, just in case I didn't touch on it, we are 501c3, it's completely free. Um, there's no requirement that you do anything. You don't pay us the money back. Our money's in a revolving fund. Um, so we just ask that you reach out to us so that we can we can help you and your loved one. Thank you. And Amadou? Yeah, cool deal. Um, so I would first and foremost say that um, Safe, follow Safer Foundation on social media. Uh, Safer Foundation, we're on Instagram, we're on uh, Twitter, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Facebook. If you search for us, you can contact us there. We're very responsive. I get a per I personally get a, a notification every time somebody reaches out to us on those channels. So um, I, would, I would say start there. Um, you know, these are trying times, and I know that there are a lot of folks out there who are trying to figure out how they're going to re-enter during this pandemic. So if you are somebody who needs immediate services and supports, you should call our hotline, or if you know somebody, you should call our main office line, which is 312-922-2200. Um, and so if you reach that number, uh, you'll be redirected to a hotline and you can best direct folks as to where you, you, you need to go. And for those who are interested in following up with me personally, uh, it's just my first name, Amadou, dot la uh, my last name, Drame, at saferfoundation.org. That's my first name, period. My last name at saferfoundation.org. Um, pretty responsive, generally. So, um, you know, it's the best ways to reach us. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's what I would suggest. Okay, I'm checking around everywhere to make sure we didn't have any questions that we missed before we sign off. I want to thank you all for joining me. I really, really enjoyed the conversation. Look forward to had me asking you to join me in the studio when we return after it's clear from the pandemic. Yes. Uh, and with that, as I always say, signing off, do not go gently into that good night. I want you to find a heel worth dying for and take it. Mm -hmm. Remember, you are the person that you have been praying for and to make today so awesome that yesterday gets jealous and above all else, do it your way. I'm Stephanie Wilson Coleman, the Empowerment Doctor, and it has truly been a blast. Remember, life is too short to drink cheap champagne. Until next time, you guys have a great life. Bye now. Bye-bye. Peace, Chicago. Thank you. Peace. We are disconnecting from uh, Facebook. Stop.